You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, I'm excited uh, because this week we have one of the leading academics when it comes to value capture. Yes, that process of recycling the windfall gains that result from uh, better and better infrastructure services to a a particular location. Uh, It's Matthew Burke, who's the Associate Professor at Griffith University's Cities Research Institute, where he is the principal researcher. It's all about infrastructure. We've had uh, the federal budget announced overnight uh, here in Australia, and there's yeah, some good news. If uh, you're uh, looking to reduce the congestion in your community, uh, what was your take on the infrastructure side of the federal budget last night, Matthew Burke? Oh, there's there's certainly uh, plenty of promises, uh, but most of that are in the out years of the forward estimates. In fact, infrastructure spending over the next few years uh, is pretty modest. Uh, and that that continues a trend, uh, though. You know, we've had um, recent prime ministers tell us that they want to be infrastructure prime ministers. Actual infrastructure spending has not been overly strong in Australia for, a, for quite a period of time now. So, you know, we do have uh, what the infrastructure lobby always likes to call the, the the infrastructure deficit, but we do have some some problems. And that's certainly evident in the transport systems that we see around Australia. The states are all clamouring for for funding for different projects, and particular local authorities um, are jostling. Uh, and we have, you know, we have an uptick in congestion uh, seen in some of the metrics, and we have particular problems with some of our rail systems that need to be fixed. For me, one of the the most interesting elements to the Turnbull uh, Prime Ministership was that it was virtually his first policy announcement was uh, getting on a tram on the Gold Coast and saying, look, we need to engage in these innovative forms of infrastructure funding. And uh, you've done quite a bit of study on that area. Yeah, we have indeed. But um, the the big shift from turn to Turnbull from Abbott was that Abbott had made it very clear that he did not believe that the Commonwealth should be doing urban rail projects, uh, that it should quote unquote stick to its knitting and uh, uh, and stick with road funding. And so the big shift to Turnbull, and and I think the big the big um, signal he was sending by. By doing that, was you know, you know that the Commonwealth was under the LNP, uh, was the, the Liberal National Parties was going to once again fund public transport, and that was quite a shift for them. The historically National Party gets the the transport portfolio under a coalition government, and um, and they've wanted to fund roads much more so. But yes, the the there's been a strong growing message from the federal government and from bodies that's established like Infrastructure Australia to continue to tell the states and local authorities that if they want to get federal funding for infrastructure, the the Commonwealth only has so much money and it doesn't want to go it alone and is very much encouraging them to go and look for what they call alternative funding uh, arrangements. 
so non-traditional funding. Can you find extra funds from other sources uh, to stretch those scarce dollars? And value capture methods are one of the obvious ways that people have started looking for that, that extra. Certainly, and uh, in the budget last night, I could only see a passing reference to value capture, but they've uh, developed over the last year or so the Infrastructure and Project Financing Agency, and uh, I wonder if you could talk a bit about that and uh, its role in, in assisting these more innovative financing mechanisms. Well, there's, oh, there's lots of work happening, and it's not just at, at federal government level. Um, but, but you know, actually having a minister for cities, having a body like Infrastructure Australia, the new agency, all of them are saying, you know, these are the, the states and the territories should be looking at value capture. But most of the mechanisms for value capture, the Commonwealth is saying is not for us to do. We, we at Commonwealth level do not have the powers to bring in new land taxes, say, or or other arrangements, and they don't want to get into the business of, of area levies uh, around infrastructure. So while they pitch value capture as a solution to funding problems for infrastructure, they're asking the states and local governments to take the political pain of those levies and taxes. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, this, this is when we get to the real politics of, of value capture, it's a very easy, you know, uh, message for for the Commonwealth government to to wag its finger and say to the states and local governments, you should be doing this. But it, it's much more difficult for those local authorities and state governments to actually go into a neighbourhood and say, look, we want to have this project, but we want to ask you to help pay for it uh, in ways that is different to what has been done just up the road, just over the border, just in the city over there, uh, and the way we've done business in the past. It's a very difficult task. It's a huge one. And uh, is this body, the Infrastructure and Project Financing Agency, going to help? Uh, um, what I've read online is that uh, they're uh, financial experts, they're, they're really good at uh, helping develop the financial side to cases. But uh, for me, mm -hmm. it is that political logjam and the fact that the everyday person doesn't have time to get their head around this fact that uh, they're probably going to enjoy, you know, 20, 30 percent windfall gain. If they just pay back uh, 10 percent of that, then uh, it's a fair go for funding that infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. So for listeners who aren't um, familiar with the, the value capture framework, in essence, if a state government rezones some land, or if you know that's that's you know a farmer's paddock on the outskirts of one of the Australian cities, or if they build a new train line right through that paddock, they're likely to change the value of that land quite significantly if a station is built right there, or if it's just rezoned to allow it to be developed for urban urban uses. And traditionally in Australia, the land owner has simply pocketed a windfall gain from that. States and local authorities haven't tried to claim back much of that value increase. We get a little bit back in council rates, but a very meagre proportion. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's used quite commonly in other areas that, that 
uh, governments will do a whole plethora of different things to try and grab a, a small percentage or a modest percentage of that value uplift. Uh, so if there's a rezoning of land, they might say to the, the landholders, look, you can pocket 50% of the windfall gains there by the actions of the state. You know, we know you didn't do anything productive. We know you didn't invest or hire anybody or work hard or do anything. But, you know, you can you can keep a bit of that, that windfall gain. But we want the other 50% back. And we'll use that 50% to pay for the infrastructure that will facilitate urban development in this new area. And, you know, on that kind of grounds, almost every economist you talk to will say, that's a much fairer system. And it helps pay for these this infrastructure problem that we have and will allow development to occur, um, hopefully reduce, you know, the very unaffordable housing prices in Australian cities for the betterment of all. And and that's that's kind of the model that, that most people are, are suggesting we shift to. And there's a number of different ways we can do it. The ACT is the most progressive, I think, in this in this area. They've moved to a, a broad based land tax. And they're slowly going to transition their whole system across that. I think it's a very long transition time, something like a 20-year change over time. Mm, but it's already having great effects. Uh, apartment prices are starting to fall as investors recognise the financial constraints uh, don't quite weigh up to the uh, prices they've paid. So uh, there's good signs yeah. in, in Canberra. Yeah, and it was pretty unaffordable for a city of its size. It had... You know, for cities of that size around the world, there's, there's not too many that aren't in real tourist locations that have housing prices at that rate. Canberra's still a very livable city, you know, great schools, uh, all sorts of things going for it. And now, obviously, a, um, a tram system. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it kind of, that, that approach, I think, is, is a pretty good way to move. And, and there's a lot of economists who will say, that's probably the best approach. Land taxes like that, of course, are one of those great taxes. It's very difficult to hide from. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Very hard for people to escape them. They're reasonably fair and progressive in the sense that if you own a lot of land, uh, you'll tend to, um, to to pay more. And if you own very little or it's worth very little, you'll pay a lot less. Those who therefore are most likely to be able to afford to pay, will pay more. Uh, so it's different, say, to like the Gold Coast's current uh, transport levy, which helped pay for the Gold Coast light rail that we mentioned before that Malcolm Turnbull rode on. But it's a very flat levy applied to every ratepayer at, at the same level, no matter whether they're in an area that gets the best public transport services uh, or whether they're in an area that's well away from that and only gets a bus once every hour, or whether they're uh, a very rich, um, you know, on a very expensive property, or whether they're on a not so wealthy property. And I think, you know, a sort of broadbush land tax tends to be a fairer way to do that. There's reasons why the Gold Coast brought in what they did, and it's been very effective and very successful. But there might be some slightly preferable ways to move 
uh, in the longer term. Mm. Yes, listeners, uh, I think it's something like a $117 annual fee that uh, each landholder pays. Right. And uh, it seems to have been sort of an easy way out uh, for the Gold Coast. And I think also Parramatta is proposing a $200 uh, per square metre value capture system as well. So it's sort of yeah. a... It's a it's a one size fits all charge rather than, you know, what uh, we get passionate about here on the Renegades, and that is that those who live in the better location, who will obviously enjoy greater uh, unearned incomes or capital gains uh, from this infrastructure oh, they, they project, just benefit from that accessibility. Yeah, uh, but they that they pay more, and so there are options to tier these things. You know, so our research on the Gold Coast has shown, uh, and we looked at areas, you know, 100 metres from the um, stage one light rail stations, 400 metres, 800 metres and beyond. And we compared that to uh, a control area, uh, an area very similar in in how it, you know, where it is and how it, you know, close to the beach, all that sort of stuff, to see what the the difference between those two areas was. And there was, you know, as much as a 30% increase in some of these areas compared to the base case uh, or the control area, uh, especially this area from 100 metres to 400 metres. There's still an awful lot of benefit if you live with, within 100 metres, but there seems to be a bit of disbenefit from the transport systems as well. Maybe a bit of noise, a bit of nuisance, maybe, you know, strange people getting off and on the light rail at night. I don't know. So something else seems to be happening that, that we, we're capturing in the in the numbers. But in that real sweet spot from 100 metres to 400 metres, less than a five-minute walk to the to the tram, all that accessibility, your, your house price is, is going up quite significantly. And so there's probably some grounds that people in those sort of areas probably in the future, uh, especially on new build, uh, we might want to think about saying, hey, guys, we, we might ask you to contribute a little bit more. Uh, now, of course, there's difficulties with this and you, you might want to have exclusions for pensioners or or you know, people in, in hardship um, situations, all those sorts of things. Like we do for all existing taxes, we tend to have hardship provisions and we tend to have discounts for, for various people in society. Uh, you still want to do all of that. But uh, in the main, yeah, that that tiering might be a better way to go about it uh, mm. if you're not willing. And, you know, so for instance, um, Queensland government doesn't seem to have any uh, great uh, impetus to start moving to broad-based land taxes. Um, but it's always a discussion that's out there whether that is a, a preferable way to go. Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and this week we're talking to one of the nation's leading researchers when it comes to capturing the value of uh, the windfall gains we often talk about on the show and using that to finance infrastructure. We're, of course, speaking to Associate Professor Matthew Burke, who's the Principal Researcher at the Cities Research Institute at Griffith University. In Queensland. So, Matthew, uh, yeah, that was quite some study you put out and uh, was of great relief because uh, there is some conjecture about value capture, despite it mm. being, you know, one of the primary funding mechanisms for our rail systems prior to World War One. 
there are issues, as you've alluded to, with uh, uh, the magnitude of the uplift and whether there will actually be And enough. there always will be, yeah. Well, what are some of those <laughs> factors that influence whether an infrastructure project is actually going to deliver the sort of uh, windfall gains we expect? The first thing is that not all transport systems are the same. Uh, so, for instance, we've been looking at light rail, heavy rail, ferries and busways up here in the southeast and in Sydney uh, across our team. We're working with partners at the, the University of Sydney. And, you know, bus busways have a very different uh, shape to the value uplift that they produce because Australia's busways, whether it's the... Uh, the system that heads heads out west in in Sydney, or the the larger um, uh, busway network in Brisbane, uh, one of the largest busway exclusive busway networks in the world. Um, buses tend to run along the busway, sure, but then they they kind of pop off it and then distribute out into the suburbs. And some of the areas that benefit most are not those that are clustered around the actual busway stations. They're they're on these kinds of now, when you look at the shape on a map, it looks like a cloud that kind of comes out of the busway or runs along key corridors that funnel onto those busways. So the shape is very, very different and much more diffuse, much more dispersed. Um, and there are many more properties that are affected, but they tend to have a lesser uplift. Ferries, the, the, the shape is very concentrated around the ferry terminals. Uh, and particular types of ferry terminals. So when we looked in Brisbane, uh, we had hypothesised growth around quite a, a number of stops, uh, but a couple of those didn't really happen. It was it was where the development opportunities were greatest. So it seemed that the ferries really had an effect, not just in in creating accessibility to a site, but they seemed to have even greater effect where they worked in concert with land development. And I certainly think that's part of the secret of Gold Coast Light Rail's success as well. When we look there, um, it's not just the light rail. It's the fact that the light rail allowed them to go to higher densities in key areas. It's facilitated not having height controls, basically, in Surface Paradise. You couldn't do that unless you knew that you would be able to move people in and out of those precincts. Because uh, the the local grid there, there, we can't put any more cars there. Basically, um, it's a very constrained area with few bridges in and out, and um, and Southport uh, similarly, you know, a very constrained area. And only because of light rail could we go to higher zoning. So it's it's usually not just the public transport project per se, but it's the planning around it and the the nature of of what we do around that. Uh, so while we always conceive of these as transport projects, they're not. They're city building projects and, and you need to understand each one and what it's likely to do in its like local catchment. And we've really only in the last few years started to really systematically get together that evidence base upon which decision makers can now start to say, look, we know that light rail in these sort of contexts does tend to do this. And with some certainty, be able to go to communities and say, look, we know that it, this is very variable, but the, you know, we're, we, we can say with, with some certainty that we're likely to get this kind of uplift. 
but you can't go you can't go in hard and then say we're going to take you know 75 80 90 percent of that back from you if we're not able to test and see that that uplift does occur so matthew uh I mean, for me, the real rub of it is this political, the political risk of engaging in such projects. And uh, for me, one of the more innovative uh, baby steps that was proposed when the Victorian Premier, when Andrews was in opposition, was uh, that uh, they would have a no losers value capture type approach. And that was when they removed the level crossings, uh, any new uh, commercial properties created on on that land, uh, basically uh, uh, above uh, the bridges um, for these level crossings, they would pay some sort of value capture charge. But unfortunately, when they got in government, they dropped that. Uh, what are some of the yeah. other more innovative uh, approaches you've seen to to uh, to get the ball rolling on value capture and? Uh, is there a, a role for uh, expanded public education beyond uh, yeah. what little radio shows like mine do? Yeah, yeah. Well, the first issue is that this is, I mean, we're dealing with one of the, the most difficult issues in a democracy with our kind of taxation systems, and especially with the very high home ownership rates that we have in Australia. So Australia is often declared to be a home-owning democracy. We're also a car-owning democracy. But in in the terms of this conversation, we talk about being a, a home-owning democracy. And so these issues hit very strong political nerves. And... Um, so we go into communities, and uh, let's take a good example. Uh, you know, so um, the Southeast Busway project. We had uh, the BT government announce in Queensland that it wanted to build a new busway, and it wanted to build it uh, within about eighteen months to have you know buses starting to actually run along. But certainly within two years, it was going to look like this. Um, and it had had the Premier out in front basically saying, you know, I'm going to build this, I'm going to deliver it, here we go. Um, the transport study was undertaken and it set out where the stations would be, what would happen, how the system would work, etc. Uh, and then they got on with, with building it, you know, um, the financing was found and, and on we went. The, the project was initially commissioned by uh, by a, a liberal uh, a national party coalition here, and but eventually delivered uh, by the other side of government. I think uh, we had a, a change of election around that time. But regardless, through that whole time and the institutions of the the, the transport agency here, we did the transport project really well. We got a great project. You know, it works really well. It's been fantastic. It's now reached its capacity. It's been too successful. We've got to now shift it, uh, and it just got money in the the federal budget for what's called the metro, which is really the conversion of the busway to something else. But we then go into the community and we start to say to them, "Hey, we've built we've built this thing. We now want to talk to you about rezoning around these stations." Mm. And the community says, you're kidding, right? And we're like, no, no, no. We've, we've just invested all this money in this transport project. We want to get value out of it. We want to get people riding on the buses in greater numbers. We want to rezone houses around these stations. 
And I remember visiting a, uh, a town hall meeting where 500 people with pitchforks uh, basically uh, wanted to kill the, <laughs> the elected official who, who, you know, showed up to to talk about this proposal. And I can look out from my uh, my window here at Griffith University down uh, at that busway and just further along, there's a, a suburb where we built a station that really only services the, the local community there. And it's very low density. Those people got all the benefit of that, that accessibility. And we've had no rezoning, no real uplift um, other than, you know, so it, no no value for the transport agency or for the investors in that project. Those people continue to live on very nice properties nearby. That station we should never have built. For the cost of that station, you know, really it should never have been built. And what I'm getting at here is right at the start, we should have had a conversation with that community and said, two choices. We can build a station here and we can get rezoning and we might ask to claw back a little bit of the value uplift you get. We might put a little, little levy on you, but we know you're going to get this massive increase in house prices. Or two, we don't build a station here and we simply express past you. Your choice. Hmm. But we really should have had that conversation with yeah. that community. And there's a number of stations like that we build on rail extensions and other areas we, we really should be having that kind of conversation with people and saying, you know, um, the project can stack up with or without you, but we want to do it with you, but here's your choice. But we don't, you know, we don't conceive of projects in that way. Yes, well, at least uh, Turnbull has started to put that language into uh, the equation in the budget papers They. They say, look, infrastructure should predominantly be focused on improving the supply side of the economy rather than on influencing demand. There are risks of infrastructure spending is not well timed and targeted or is pursued when the economy is closer to full employment. These risks include public infrastructure either crowding out private sector activity or escalating project costs. And they talk yeah. uh, again about longer-term thinking rather than short-term considerations. So... Yeah, it's kind of coded language in there, but I'm hoping this infrastructure and project financing agency can really step up on that level and ensure yeah. that uh, there is a serious uh, community outreach when when this planning uh, type uh, stage of uh, the project is uh, being discussed. There's no issue with finance. I mean, we're awash with finance in Australia. There's, you know, um, the state's, even large local authorities are able to borrow at very, very attractive rates in the current environment. And so, you know, regardless of new agencies and other things to help with the financing and packaging of these things, it's the value sharing units that were set up in different governments uh, at state level that have really done a lot of the hard yards now. And it's they who've been trying to pull together the project-specific uh, arrangements for this. When I think value capture really starts to take off in Australia is when we've done a number of projects around Australia that use a similar mechanism and people start to become familiar with it and it starts to become you know, business as usual. And we're not at that yet. We're far from that yet. 
So we see quite bespoke solutions being developed, Parramatta light rail or Gold Coast light rail, and tested and then probably tweaked as we go over time. And uh, where I think we'll start to have long-term success is where we start to coalesce around a set of practices and, and a, a model that starts to, to work and that the federal government starts to almost demand it be part of project business cases. And without it, you know, you're not likely to get funded. I think that's where things will start to head. So there we have it, listeners. Uh, some incredible research going on behind the scenes, and I just can't wait to see what uh, Associate Professor Matthew Burke is set to release later on this year, early next year. Uh, great to have people like him on board uh, pushing this common sense approach that uh, you know you you get a bit, you give a bit back, and. Uh, that occurs when you're when you're a worker, but when you're a property owner, it's very minimal, and that's the loop we need to close. All right, check out the show notes at earthsharing.org.au, and uh, keep in touch with the news at prosper.org.au. 